We are finishing up our short month of December Advent time in the in the book of Luke in the early chapters. And next week we're going to start into Revelation where we'll be for the better part of the year, 2022, maybe the entire year, maybe more. And uh, as we finish up here, we, we're in a text that, like so many of Luke's early material, is it's the only, it's only, it's only shared by Luke. Um, it's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful episode where Mary and Joseph circumcise Jesus after he's eight days old. Once, once he turns eight days old, according to the law. And then she, they go up to the temple and she, uh, purifies herself after 40 days, again, according to the Levitical law. And then they offer, this isn't mentioned, but they almost certainly offer, they would have offered five shekels to redeem the firstborn, to buy him back, as it were. That's also in the law in Numbers 18, 15. And uh, so so they they obey the law. And, and, and Jesus is submitted even before he's able to know what's going on as a, as a tiny baby, days old. He is submitted to the law. So even, so through his parents' obedience, he is, fulfilling the law even before he's able to do so as a fully human, you know, days old human being. Uh, so that's the first episode, and, and I'll unpack that just a little bit. But um, the second is is a wonderful, a touching scene and a piercing scene where as they're in the temple making these offerings, they encounter Mary and Joseph and, and baby Jesus encounter two people, Simeon, an old prophet type, and uh, who's about to die, but whom God has promised you will see the Messiah with your own eyes before you die. And he yeah. offers up this wonderful utterance when he not only sees Jesus, but holds Jesus. And it must have been so reassuring to Mary and Joseph. Because nobody but God told this man who Jesus was. And... Uh, so he speaks the words, these prophetic words, the words of a prophet. And then Anna, who's called a prophetess, she uh, she's essentially been in the temple day and night fasting and praying since she uh, since she was young. She's in her 80s now. It, it seems that it's a bit confusing, but um, she uh, she was married seven years and her husband died. And then now she's old and she's been a widow, just consecrated to the Lord, spending all of her time in the temple seeking his face. And she also recognizes Jesus. We're just going to focus on Simeon. Um, so just briefly moving back to the opening of the text where Luke pointedly shows us that Jesus submits to the law through his parents. And then secondly, looking at Simeon and his wonderful words. Um, but just just to be clear, just to parse a bit, Jesus... Um, you know, I, I'm calling this lesson Jesus God's salvation and ours because that's I'm taking the word straight from straight from Simeon he calls Jesus he says Lord now my eyes have seen your salvation he doesn't say our salvation the salvation of humanity now in other words he he explains that that's exactly what Jesus has come to do to save us but he calls Jesus God's salvation and that's that's what the sermon is if, as, as it were this lesson title comes from Jesus is God's salvation. He's God's chosen way of saving 
humanity. Anyone who ever will be reconciled to God, whoever will live past death, whoever will find peace and forgiveness and wholeness, will find it through God's chosen instrument, Jesus. Uh, he wasn't an accident. His crucifixion wasn't an accident. On the contrary, he is God's chosen instrument, um, foretold by the by the scriptures centuries before who would come to save sinners and to begin the process of restoring creation. And uh, and God sent him forth in the fullness of time. And so, um, but to parse just a bit before we jump into that a little bit more and then get to Simeon. Um, again, verse 21 shows Jesus being circumcised. So the law required that. You see that in Genesis 17, 12 through 14, in Genesis 21, 4, and then in, in Leviticus 12, 3. Um, at eight days old, Israelite males were to be circumcised. And circumcision is, is the Old Testament form of our New Testament sacrament of baptism. And that you can see that in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In both cases, life comes from death. So we, we see that with baptism more clearly because we, as Christians, if you're, if you're listening to this and you're a Christian, I say we, but you may not be, and that's wonderful. Um, but baptism, you go under the water, um, and, and if you're sprinkled with water, that's still a symbol of, of water going over you, cleansing you, yes, but also you're going, when you go under the water, if you're held there, you die. So it takes us all the way back to Israel passing through the Red Sea, and it's, you know, Typically, when you go through a sea, you die. But they didn't drown. They passed through what normally would have been death and was death for the Egyptians alive. And, and that, that death, that Red Sea death meant life for them because it, it divided, it, it provided a barrier between them and the Egyptians. And, it, and the Red Sea closed over the Egyptians once the Israelites passed through safely. So, so from old times in the, in the history of God's people, um, baptism was a sign of of life in the place, life where death should be. But you got to die first for life to happen. And so, of course, in that sense, in that way, it points to the cross. And in that way, it, 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 all the things in the Old Testament point to Jesus. He fulfills them, as he says so many times, once he comes. Luke 24, uh, John 5, Matthew 5, 17, so many places. He, all those things were pictures in history of, of God painting what, paving the way for his son Jesus to come. So that when he came, you know, take another example, the, the sacrifices, none of them took away sins, but they all pointed to Jesus such that when Jesus came on the scene in his ministry, John the Baptist, all he had to do was say, behold, look, it's the lamb of the world who takes, it's the lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world. And everyone, every Jew knew what that meant. It meant that, yeah, animals, animals take away our sins by, by, um, through transfer, through substitution, they are counted as the guilty party so that the guilty party can go free and they die in our place. They never took away sins, but they were pointers to the one who would come take away sins. The book of Hebrews puts that wonderfully. So, so baptism does that. And it's the, it's the new covenant sign of the old covenant sacrament, which is circumcision and circumcision does that too. We don't think as much about that, but, uh, circumcision was death being applied to a place of life. You don't, you don't cut a boy's, I mean, light, a boy's penis is where life comes from, right? And when he grows up to be a man and he, and he joins with a wife, uh, they produce children. Life comes from the penis. 
Uh, that's the way God made it. Uh, but to take a knife to that is to essentially take death to the place of life. And so in that way too, and there's more, there's more, there's more that um, circumcision, mean, circumcision means than that. It also points to being cut off from God's people, which you're not, if that, if that covenant isn't applied to you. And that's sort of a corollary. But, but in both cases, uh, life comes from the place of death. And that, that those are pointers to the way that we would be saved through Jesus Christ. So all that to say, that's there. But Jesus is submitted even before he's able he chooses parents who he knows will obey the law and they circumcise him according to the law. And again, never think of Jesus just as Jesus, apart from apart from being a representative of humanity. He's all in everything he does. He's always carrying, as it were, the weight of the world on his shoulders. He's always representing every single person who will find peace with God, who will be brought near to God, whose sins will be forgiven, who will be brought into the family of God. He's carrying us in his life. Not only in his death on the cross, but in his life. Um, and so in all of his law keeping, even as a baby, he's keeping the law for us. No one ever had kept the law before, ever. Not even close. We're all lawbreakers. Paul shows that clearly in Romans 1 and especially Romans 2 and 3. We're all lawbreakers. Jesus Christ came and he obeyed the law. And that's counted to us as we trust in him. It's imputed to us. Um, it's counted to us and that righteousness is imputed to us. So... Um, you know, Paul in Galatians 4, 4 says Jesus was born under the law. This is a perfect example of that that Luke gives to us. So, so, so again, back to parsing, there are a few things happening here. Um, you risk of belaboring it. I'll move on to Simeon after this, but, um, Jesus is circumcised in, in Luke 2, verse 21, according to the law. And then Mary, uh, submits herself to the Levitical requirements of, um, of cleansing, after bearing a male child, so 33 days later, after the eight days of circ- uh, when he's circumcised, so 40 days after Jesus is born, according to the law, Mary and Joseph go to the temple, and she goes through the cleansing ceremonies, not because um, bearing a child is sinful, but because it makes you ritually unclean, and that there's a difference there, and we're not going to get into that. Um, but she, uh, she cleanses herself according to the law. And then finally, it's not mentioned, but um, certainly as law keepers, uh, this is in, again, Numbers 18, 15, they would have paid the five shekels to to redeem Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Um, in the law, it's that the law says clearly that every firstborn um, five sh- is the Lord's. Every firstborn is forfeit, even, even of animals. Every firstborn uh, um, Israelite, is forfeit. The li- their life is forfeit unless there's a redemption price paid for them. Let me just spend a, a, just a couple minutes on this because it's worth doing. Um, so the way it would work is that when the firstborn, the first one to breach the womb of a woman, there's a price on that person's head. They, they either die because their life is forfeit or um, there's a price paid for them so they can go on living and it's paid to the Lord. So what does that mean? It means that, it, it, and it's applied to the firstborn only. Why? Because the firstborn represents the family. The firstborn is the first one to breach the womb, and all that come after that are represented, therefore. just to, They come through the, the same womb that the firstborn came through. So there's a sense in which it reaches out over. It's a way of saying all children that are gods, they're only gods if the redemption price is paid for them. Now, if that doesn't preach Jesus Christ, I don't know what does. 
because we're born in sin and we need a redemption price paid for us. We need to be bought back at a price to be gods. And there was, a, again, another picture of that was the five shekels paid for the firstborn. Jesus, that was paid for him, again, um, so that all the law could be punctiliously, perfectly fulfilled through his life. Because it's not just his death that counts for us. It's his life that counts for us. My old professor, Michael Kruger, would say sometimes in his Sunday school classes, he would write a question on the board at the beginning, and he would open it by with a provocative question, um, or he would say, we are saved by works, true or false, or are we saved by works? And, you know, we're trained to say, no, we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. Um, and that's why it's a provocative statement. Uh, the answer is true, we are saved by works. Or if it's the question, are we saved by works? The answer is yes, we are saved by works. We're not saved by our own works. We're saved by the work of Christ. He didn't just save us in his death. He took our sins upon himself and cleansed us of all unrighteousness, cleared our guilt and lifted our shame off of us onto himself. He paid that price on the cross once and for all. But he also lived a life of perfect law keeping and obedience from the heart. Uh, the way that we are supposed to live but cannot and do not in his life. And so every, Mike Kruger would say, look, and we, in believing on his work in our place, we are saved. In his life in our place, in his death in our place, in his resurrection in our place, we are saved. We're saved by work, not our own work, his work. Jesus came to do what we could not do for ourselves. And so um, Mike would go on to say that, you know, all, your, your, your salvation hung on every act of Jesus, his every thought, his every action done, all the, all the things that he didn't do that would have been sinful, and all the things that he did. There were no sins of omission or commission with Jesus. He obeyed God. The law is God's will. He obeyed God's will, his Father's will, perfectly from the heart. And that is counted to you when you look to him by faith, as is his death. So, so this really, in a very concrete way, shows us that from earliest days, Jesus was fulfilling, he was fulfilling the law. A circumcision of the shekels being paid, um, the redemption price. And um, let me just touch on this little detail, and then we can move on to Simeon. Um, the, the price that, that is offered once Mary cleanses herself, uh, there's, there's a, a sacrifice required Levitically in Leviticus 12, I think it's verse eight. And the sacrifice is, I believe a lamb, or if you can't afford a lamb, there's, there's provision all throughout the law for the poor. So there's dignity. See, God, on one hand, God doesn't say, well, if you don't have a lamb, you're screwed. He provides for a lesser offering for, for those that can't afford a lamb. But also, he allows them the dignity, he gives them dignity by saying, but you too need to offer something. And I love that. They, the poor are to offer, if they can't afford a lamb in this particular instance in Leviticus 12.8, they offer two birds, or four birds, I should say. It's two of each kind. Um, and 
And so that's exactly now Luke doesn't explain all this. He just he just either assumes a knowledge of the law or assumes that we'll go back and look, and look at it and educate ourselves. But they bring birds for the sacrifice, which means they're very modest means, which is just a again, it's a it's a neat insight into the heart of God that we don't choose our parents. But God, God did. Jesus chose to have Mary and Joseph as his parents. And in the case of Joseph, his adoptive father. But uh, they didn't have I mean, think about it. Most most are all listening to this can afford could afford to buy a land. They could not. And and so that shows you that they were I mean, Jesus wasn't John. Excuse me. Joseph was no beggar. He was a, a worker and I'm sure he did excellent work and worked hard. But he was a blue, solidly blue collar worker with with wood and, and no doubt stone. Because a lot of times carpenters then would have worked with stone. They would have been stone masons. He worked with his hands and. Lived in a small village uh, up in the hills of, of Galilee called Nazareth, a few hundred people. Everybody would have known each other, which is one of the problems with Mary getting pregnant out of wedlock, because everyone would have thought of Jesus as illegitimate, right? And that's brought back um, onto his head later in his ministry. Um, and um, but G- Jesus loves, he, he, he chose poor parents. He loves the poor. He has a special heart for the poor. Um and in fact, he says, in, you know, at the beginning of the, the opening to the best sermon ever, the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, which is such a gut punch. It's not what anyone would have expected. Blessed are the rich is what everybody thought. You know, riches are a sign of God's favor and blessing. No, Jesus got, and they are, and they are. Blessing, well, and they are, what I mean by that is, riches are from the Lord. They are a gift from him. But often, uh, riches come to the wicked. But but God has a special heart for the poor. Uh, and he says, you have to be poor in spirit to enter the kingdom. And what that means is that we have to understand there's nothing of value that we can bring. Not our hard work, not our money, not our resume, not our good looks, not our good behavior, not our penance, nothing. Nothing can avail us. Nothing can gain us access into God's home, his house, his kingdom, his lap, his favor. We can't bring anything, which is why he came to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, which is why looking to Jesus is the only way that anyone can be saved, and it's all all that God requires. Jesus has done everything in his death and life to save us. So um, we just see this neat insight into this neat little window that Luke doesn't even explicate into God's heart for the poor. He even chose poor parents. Um, so as Christians, you know, you read, is it James 2 or 3 that talks about preferring the rich to the poor? Don't do that. Don't do that. Let us show special honor to the poor. Let us, no matter how many rich, worldly riches we have, be poor in spirit. Be poor. Understand, like, I mean, every kid is poor in spirit. Every kid, let us be like children. We have to be like children to enter the kingdom. What I mean by every kid is poor is every kid is not too proud to ask repeatedly and incessantly and annoyingly for what they want. Pride keeps us from asking for things. Um, But in the kingdom, the kingdom economy is to be utterly dependent on our Father, to ask Him for everything, to go to Him for everything, to run to Him crying and laughing for everything. That's what kids do. And so to be a child, to understand that you are a child of the Father, to run to Him, and and to do that by faith in the way that He's provided, to be His son or daughter, which to be reconciled to Him, which is His son Jesus. Not to be too proud, not to think, I've got to do this on my own. I've got to, whenever I hear someone say, yeah, I just need some time to kind of get my life in order, I know that they're lost. I know that they don't understand the gospel because the gospel is that you can't 
get your life in order. That's why Jesus came. Run to him. So that's enough of that. It's not enough of that. There's so much more, but um, that's the opening of Luke. But then as we finish looking at Simeon, and again, just his amazing words um, to, to Mary and Joseph. He's been in the temple a long time. He's older, and um, the Lord has told him that he... He's been waiting for the Messiah. And the Lord said, you won't you won't die until you see the Messiah. So he, it says that Luke says he, he came into the in the spirit. So he's in the Holy Spirit. He's the, he's clothed in the spirit. He's he's filled with the spirit. He's spiritually minded at this point. He's and so he's able to sense when this little when these parents come with this little baby, that this baby he's hearing from God. This baby is the savior that's been promised to Israel and to the world. So, and he utters these amazing prophetic words. Um, it, it says, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, which we just talked about some, he took, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. So what does he do? Wow. He takes Jesus in his arms. And here, listen to these words. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. So in other words, I can die happy now. I can die satisfied. I can die I know now that your plan is being set in motion and the plan and that plan is this baby. And that's what I want to focus on here for a few minutes. Okay. Lord, you're not letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Just like you've told me, I wouldn't die until I saw him. And according to your word, your word, the scriptures, the Old Testament has promised that you would send a Messiah to save Israel and and to renew creation. And indeed, that is what you have now done through this baby Jesus. So, so. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. And then verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What? I love that. That's verse 30. Luke 2, verse 30. I love that verse. For my eyes have seen your salvation. What is the salvation of God? Is it a prayer that we pray? Is it, is it a dogma that we believe? Uh, I'm not casting aspersions on prayers or dogmas at all. They're, they're both necessary and good. You know what does what does Paul say? If you if you uh, if you say with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that He rose from the dead, you'll be saved. True. But in the end, it, it's not it's not having the right theology that saves us. It's not having enough faith. It's not walking down the aisle or saying a prayer. It's not doing a certain amount of good works so that God's pleased with you. It's not any of those things. What is what in these very simple but profound words? What does Simeon say? For my eyes have seen your salvation. It's this baby. It's Jesus. Jesus, the man. Jesus, the baby. Jesus, the person is the one that God that he is God's salvation. And that's what his name means. God made it simple for us to remind us in case we forget the name Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the covenant name for God. Jesus' own name tells us how God saves. That Jesus means God saves. With no help from us, this baby is going to save the world. From eyes of senior salvation, and he's, imagine just Simeon holding this baby in his arms, maybe looking down at him, maybe like the Lion King sort of moment where he's hold, maybe he's holding the baby up in the air. And that is the salvation of the world right there. That is the instrument God's going to use to affect our salvation, to bring about the renewal of the world's. So Simeon goes on, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. In other words, again, like I said earlier, I think it's not an accident. Jesus's life, 
his birth to, to poor parents, his birth in this obscure town of Bethlehem, uh, because they, Mary and Joseph were there while Mary was pregnant because of the census that was decreed by Caesar Octavius, who became Caesar Augustus, who brought in the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and on and on it goes. No, none of it's an accident. It was all prepared in the presence of the peoples, of all peoples, Simeon says, by God. Again, thinking of Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. God did it. He sent him forth in counsel with the son at the exact perfect right time when the time was pregnant or full. God sent his son who passed through the heavens, was born of a virgin, grew up to a man, was crucified for us. It was not an accident that he was crucified. It was God preparing his weapon of salvation, Isaiah 49, his, his polished dagger or arrow, his weapon of salvation, who would die and through dying would defeat death, would kill death by death, to use a phrase from the Prince of the Puritans, John Owen. He would kill death through death. He would rob death of its power, which is sin, by becoming, by bearing our sins and bearing them and rising to a new kind of life. And we have that life in us if we indeed look to him for salvation. And, and, and um, he says that you have prepared, not only prepared, but in the presence of all peoples, not just Israel. But Israel was to be a light to the nations, so the nations that God made could be saved and could return back to him. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. He's going to blow the gates of the temple open. He's going to remove, to use Paul's phrase, the dividing wall of hostility so that anyone from any nation and any people and any tribe and any tongue and any socioeconomic class and any skin color and any age and any sex, and either sex, I should say, male or female, could come to God. Through his salvation, Jesus, and in no other way. You can't, no matter what, who you are or where you're from, you cannot get to God but through Jesus. But through Jesus, no matter where you're from, you can get to God fully. You can be brought right into his lap and into his home and into his favor. Through the person of Jesus, God's salvation that he's prepared for all peoples. And then Simeon goes on, in case we missed it, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. No, the Gentiles didn't have the slightest clue who God was. They were grasping in the dark. But God came to us himself in the person of this child. And he would be hung on a cross at a crossroads of the world at Jerusalem, outside of the walls, for all nations to see and then to be proclaimed through Paul and the early church and others. And it's still being proclaimed to this day to everyone who will listen, to anyone who has ears to hear. And it's our job and privilege to proclaim that message that God has come to save us in the person of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. So he brought light to a people in darkness, and it's glory to Israel. Jesus is an Israelite. He's born as he brought, He's born through the nation of Israel as a Jew for the Jews first, and then for the Gentiles. What is that? That's what Paul says in Romans 1, is it 17? He, Jesus the glory, is the glory. He's the crowning jewel of Israel, and yet Israel will crucify him, along with the world, the Romans and others. We all crucified him because he hung on the cross with our sin on him. And then, and then, as I close, I don't want to leave this out, right? Um, it says, Luke says that they marveled. Mary and Joseph just marvel at Simeon's words. Again, think about how encouraged they were. Think about how encouraged they were. Everything Simeon was saying Everything was everything the angel had told them and more. This is this child is special. This child is going to 
bring light to the world. And he is God's salvation that God's prepared in the sight of the nations. Wow. That's just amazing. So they marvel. But then, like a true prophet, he doesn't tickle their ears. He tells them something hard and true. He's spoken to them about who this kid is and what he's come to do. But in this last word, he speaks about how. He gives them a little hint, which they don't understand now, but we do. And they will later. He gives a little hint about how, how Jesus is going to save us. How God is going to save us through his son. And he says this. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold. So imagine him turning now to Mary. Look, he says, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So in short, and I don't have time, but in short, what he's saying is the way this is this is who this kid is and this is what he's going to do. He's the savior of the world. He's God's own son. And he's going to he's going to to make everything right. He's going to make everything sad to come untrue. But how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through pain. He's going to do it in a way that will not only blow your mind, but it's going to pierce your heart. And he's hinting at the cross here. And no doubt, Mary, she treasured up these words. No doubt they they she I mean, she was probably the one to tell Luke as he was doing historical recording to write this gospel. Um, no doubt she was the one who told him, um, or John who took her under his wing after Jesus was crucified. But uh, yeah, Simeon told me these words when Jesus was 40 days old, and I remembered them when I was sitting there. Or maybe maybe she didn't, but yeah, she probably did. When I was sitting there, standing there, watching him be crucified, my first son, my precious and special boy. And, and, and yeah, the cataclysm of thought she must have been having. Wait, but he was, he was going to... God, he is, he's God's own son. He didn't come from Joseph, I know that. He came from God. And he was going to save the world. He, he is the Israel's Messiah and King. And Savior, but he's being crucified. Everything is going wrong. Everything is going wrong. This must have been what she was thinking. And yet, recalling these words of Simeon, a sword will pierce your heart. How did seeing her first son, her precious Jesus, that she bore, that she carried for nine months and bore, and put in a, in a feed trough, how, and raised, and kissed, and bound his scrapes, and watched him work beside his father with wood and stone, how, and followed him in his ministry, and saw him turn water to wine for his first miracle. How much she felt when she saw him hanging there, naked, stripped, in anguish, crying out, pinned there like an insect. It, it Simeon tells us it felt like a sword. It felt like a sword passing through her very heart. In other words, it felt like death. Jesus' death, and, and really, I think this could maybe only be said truly, most truly about a mother. When Jesus died, Mary, it felt like Mary, Mary felt like she was dying, as she watched, sat there and watched her son hang. And let me tell you, friends, that is how God works His greatest works in our lives. That is how God achieves His salvation. It's how He brings not only how He saves us through the cross, it's how He brings about transformation in our lives is through this death. It's through pain. It's through things going, the wheels falling off. Mary never would have guessed in a million years, even though it was foretold, this is the way that her son would save the world. 
would would demonstrate his greatest power was through this abject and utter apparent defeat and through death, through murder, through excruciating pain. And yet that's how he did it. And it's not just a one-off. This is how God works. If you read the Old Testament, it's always how God works his power through his people. It's how he shapes us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And so I just want to say in closing to apply this, if you, this isn't just for Mary. It's not, it, it's for all of us. This is, God will do his greatest work in your life through pain and in ways that stun you and that seem like utter failure. Could be in your marriage. Could be in a child who's gone off the rails. It, it could be in your own heart. It could be in a career that's gone wrong or a job that you've lost or a bank account that's gone to zero or negative. It could be in losing your way and thinking that this was your life's calling, but now it's not, or it doesn't seem to be. You know, you could add a thousand different scenarios, but it, it feels like a sword piercing through your heart and you feel like God has abandoned you. He hasn't. He's working his salvation. He did it to his son. His own son affected our salvation through his greatest power act, the cross, and it looked like a disaster, but it wasn't. It was a you to take to take J.R. Tolkien's words. It was a you catastrophe. You meaning EU at the front of the word meaning good. It was a good catastrophe. It, through the cross, the cross was the ultimate you catastrophe, and God works His power in your life to make you more like His Son Jesus. It's not just the cross isn't just the way of our salvation. It's the way of our sanctification. You you, you sipping margaritas on the beach does not make you. I wish it did. But that is not where Jesus is deeply formed in your life. It's through the pain. It's through the cancer. It's through the loss. It's through the bank account going to zero. It's through the humbling stuff. It's through the part, the, the places where we question. But God is working. He is working. Remember Simeon's words. Think about the joy of Mary when Jesus rose from the dead. Powerful. Let God do his work. Let him fully form his son, Jesus Christ, in you. Look to him for salvation. If you don't know him, look to him for salvation. Now know that he didn't just die for you. He lived for you. He kept the law for you. But also look to him if you are saved day by day by day to let his salvation work itself out in you, to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. God bless you all. Happy New Year.